Well, good morning to you. It is, uh, it's great to see you. It's great to get to uh, join you again uh, for a, another week of going through this sermon series that we're in right now. It's a sermon series through the book of Hebrews called Jesus is Better. And uh, today we're in Hebrews chapter 4. We've been thinking about this question. There's kind of a fill in the blank that that sermon series title uh, asks of us, isn't there? It's better than what, right? Last week we looked at the, the, the fact that Jesus is a better sacrifice and he's better than any other substitute sacrifice that, that we might uh, put in there. And today in Hebrews 4, we're going to be looking at how he is a better high priest and what he does in his high priestly ministry uh, for us. And so I'm going to invite you, if you would, turn to, type to, go to Hebrews 4. We're going to start in verse 14. And I'm going to read to us from 14 to 16. And then we're going to, to jump into the word of God and, and see what it means. Verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Before we dive into the specifics of this text, I want us to think for a moment about what led the writer of Hebrews to give this kind of exhortation, this kind of encouragement. And I think one of the things that we're going to see is that he has and he wants us to have this rock solid belief that Jesus is a trustworthy savior. He has a rock solid belief and he wants us to have this rock solid belief that Jesus is a trustworthy savior. And, and that's the reason he says earlier in that verse, let's hold fast to our confession. He knows that there is a direct link between us treasuring Christ and us trusting Christ. He knows that that link is there and, and here's why that matters. If Jesus isn't trustworthy, then none of his promises carry any weight, right? It would make no sense for us to listen to him, to draw near to him, to go to him for help if he's not a trustworthy savior, if he can't be trusted. You know, all of us who are parents know that when our kids are little, their trust in us is a really delicate thing. And so we know that every day that we deposit more and more trust in them. And what we're, we're doing, what we're hoping is that at a time in their life, when we have to ask them to do something that maybe they don't understand, maybe it's a little bit counterintuitive, that they will know, mom and dad love me, I can trust what they have said to me. So good parents know that, and good parents don't abuse that, but I need to confess to you, I have not always been a good parent, all right? I need to have a little confession session right here, okay? One, one of the stories our family loves to tell is about a time when we were in Raleigh, North Carolina, and our family went out one day to a pond. We were in a little uh, paddle boat, and my middle daughter, who was two years at, at, at the time, two years old at the time, kept yelling for us to look at the ducks. She kept screaming about the ducks like they were some kind of endangered species that we all needed to look at, the ducks, the ducks. And so I thought it would be really funny if I offered her $5 if she would jump in and get one of the ducks. 
Now, I just want you to know this. Sarcasm is not the best way to communicate with a two-year-old, okay? I found that out that day. So the next thing I know, Eden is jumping into the pond to get the ducks and the $5. Danielle, my wife, is looking at me like, are you kidding me? What are you doing? My, my daughter, Eden, who's jumped in the water, she has a life ja jacket on just to put all your minds at ease there. Eden's looking up at me like, how could you let me do this, Dad? How could you let this happen? Friends, Eden found out that day, sadly, Eden found out that day that there are consequences connected to the people that we listen to. There are consequences connected with the people that we listen to. If we listen to the wrong people, we're going to go to the wrong places, you know, all of, us, all of us know that, and this is one of the reasons, students, that your mom and dad often talk to you about spending lots of time with people with poor character. You've probably heard them say to you uh, at some time in, in the past, they've said something like this, if you lie down with dogs, you're going to get up with what? Fleas. You're going to get up with fleas. They, they talk to you about this. You've probably heard them say something like, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And what, what, that, what does that mean? For better or worse, this is what we're saying, for better or worse, the people that we listen to, the people that we spend time with, the people that we allow to influence our life, those are the people that are kind of putting the trajectory for our lives. They're giving us the trajectory of our lives. And that's the reason that the writer of Hebrews is interested in drilling down on this idea. He wants to help them see, he wants to help us see that there are consequences connected to the people that we listen to, but then also the people that we ignore, who we ignore. And I just want you to think about this for a minute. If you were to build the case then for someone that is trustworthy, something that is trustworthy, how would you go about doing something like that? You know, all of us think about this all the time, don't we? If you're, if you're wanting to go to a new, a new restaurant, or you want to go to a, maybe a different doctor, or you're thinking about buying a book, what do you do? You start investigating, right? You start reading the reviews, you're going to Google, you're reading reviews, you're looking at resumes because you know that what you do, your action will follow what you find out, right? If you go in and find out this is trustworthy, it's a good likelihood that your actions will follow. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is doing in the first four chapters of the book of Hebrews. Now, we don't, we don't have enough time today, right now, for me to go through everything that he says, but I want to give you a few highlights of the things that he says, because I think we're going to see, as we get a, a running start into chapter four, why it matters, what he's been saying in the first four chapters. So he says this, a couple of highlights. First, chapter one, he says that Jesus is the exalted son of God. He's greater than angels. He's greater than anyone. And because of his greatness, he deserves to be listened to. And then he turns the corner and he starts talking about how Jesus is the suffering servant, that he came to die in the place of sinners. And then he starts talking about this, what we looked at last week. He starts talking about how Jesus is the better high priest. He's a better high priest because he can actually bring us into the presence of God. He's effective in his ministry, unlike the other high priest, the earthly high priest. And that also means then that Jesus makes us promises that no one else can make and only he can accomplish. You know, one of the primary reasons that we need to hear the drumbeat of this exhortation, 
that treasuring Christ leads to trusting Christ, that there are consequences connected to who we listen to and who we ignore and listening to Christ and, or ignoring him is because we can quickly walk away from the Lord, can't we? We so quickly walk away from the Lord and we need to hear these kinds of exhortations. Do you, are you ever amazed at how easy it is for you to disregard the word of God, even if you have been listening to it for your whole life? How easy it is to have a, an inward eye roll when the word of God conflicts with something that you love and you don't want to change. I just want you to think about this in a few areas of your life. God comes to us and he says, I want you to trust me with your finances. I want you, I, I want you to live off of less than 100% of what you make so that you can be generous and you can be sacrificial. But what do so many of us do? What, how do we come back to that command from God? We say something like this, I don't have a good system for that. I, I, I never, I, I've never been the kind of person that has willpower to do those sorts of things. I never had a good model from, for it in my home, and so I can't do it. Or we say something like this, I have too many bills. I've got too many commitments. I have too many kids. Some of you say that. Or think about this. God comes to us and he says this, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me that lust is going to kill you. I want you to walk in purity. I want you to walk in holiness. But what do so many of us say? We look at the, the command of God with an eye roll and we say this back to him. God, this has been a part, lust has been a part of my life for far too long. I tried to stop years ago and I can't. Or we say something like this, does God know what it's like to live in 2022? Does he know how, how much access I have to engage with my lust? How could God ask me to do either of those things? Doesn't he understand how difficult it is? Friends, what are we doing when we have that kind of response to the command of God. Well, ultimately what we're doing is we're disregarding the command of the Lord. We're giving it an eye roll and we're saying, you can't be trusted. Following you will only lead me to harm. You're not reliable enough to be listened to. Friends, I hope that as we look at the text today, as we look at Hebrews chapter four, that we are going to listen to this exhortation, that we're gonna hold on to our confession. And, and, and I hope that we see three things. This is it, that we will treasure Christ, that we'll listen to his word, and we'll lean on his promises. I know those aren't in your notes, but you might even wanna write them down. I think that that's one of the big ideas of this text. And we treasure Christ, we listen to him, we listen to his word, and then we lean on his promises. So let's look more closely at what Christ promised us from Hebrews chapter four. Hebrews chapter four. Before we do that, I want us to think for a moment about a big idea that I've written down that's a paragraph that I wanna give you. And if you have notes, you can fill these out. There are five of them. I know that's a whole lot to fill out. But I wanna give you a big idea of this text because I want you to be able to, whenever you, you're thinking about what does Hebrews chapter four say, what does it mean? I want you to be able to go back to something like this. So here's what I think 
the, the whole text means. Jesus is the exalted son of God and the sinless savior, but those things didn't keep him from feeling real human weakness. While on earth, Jesus experienced temptation and suffering, and because of that, Jesus, our heavenly high priest, is now able to sympathize with our temptation, deal gently with our weakness, and give us grace to endure every trial. And I ask them to keep that up for just a few moments so that you can fill in those blanks. Again, that he felt real human weakness. He experienced temptation and suffering. And because of that, he's able to sympathize with our temptations. He's able to deal gently with our weakness. And he's able to give us grace to endure every trial. So... I want to give us now three things that I think should compel us to draw near to Jesus. And the first one is this, that Jesus is gentle towards the weak and the tempted. Jesus is gentle towards the weak and the tempted. You know, there's an interesting side effect that's possible from the writer of Hebrews emphasizing the greatness of of Christ in our text. And remember what we said last week about the group of Christians that he's writing to. This group of Christians, they're being persecuted for their faith. They're losing work, they're losing friends, they're losing family, all because of their faith. And now that persecution has led them to the temptation to walk away from Christ. And so now, while all of that's happening in their life, there's this temptation that, that, that they have to walk away. Now the writer of Hebrews is telling them about the greatness of Christ, that he's unstained by sin, that he's untouched by death, that he's exalted above the heavens, that he's continually in the presence of God. And so you can kind of understand how they might start to think, how can Jesus help us? How can someone so great help people like us, people that are weak and weary, People that are, are tempted to turn around. I mean, have you ever felt like that? You know, most of the time, m- most of us don't feel something like that in our hearts when we're leaving small group or we're leaving church on a Sunday morning. But we oftentimes feel like that after we've given in. That, that weight of a feeling comes to us after we've given in to some kind of temptation. Maybe, it's, maybe you said something like this, I promised I would never do it again, but I just screamed at my kids in anger. Maybe you say something like this, I promised I would never do it again, but it's two in the morning and I've been looking at pornography for hours. Maybe you say something like this, I promised I would never do it again, but I just lied so that I would cover up another lie. You know, in those moments, many of us think this lie, that there is a massive difference in the way that I experience temptation and the way that Christ experienced temptation, which can only mean he could never sympathize with a person like me. He could never sympathize with a person that goes through the kinds of things and does the kinds of things that I do. And that's probably the reason that the writer of Hebrews writes his exhortation in such a forceful way. I want you to go back and look at what he says in verse 15. You know, he could have written it this way. He could have said, we do have a high priest who is able. 
We do have a high priest who is able. He could have written it in the affirmative. But what does he write? Look at what it says in verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable. So why does he do that? I think that he does that because it's like him saying to us, get the thought that Jesus is unable or, or unwilling to help you as far away as possible. Don't even let that come into your mind. And here's why. Jesus isn't allergic to weak people. Jesus understands what it's like to feel feeble and frail and fragile. He understands what it's like to feel weak and tempted because he's experienced all of those things. Have you, ever, uh, have you ever heard somebody say something like this, that you should never trust a leader without a limp? You should never trust a leader without a limp, meaning broken leaders have a capacity for empathy. If life has only been easy, if there's never been any kind of setback, then how can that leader lead people on their teams or that they're leading how can that person lead them with any kind of empathy? How can he, he or she lead broken people? They'll have no capacity for that. And that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying in Hebrews chapter 2. I want to read this to us. Think about what, it said, what he's saying about Jesus. It's up on your screen. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. For since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. You know, there's, a, there's another reason, though, that many of us think that Christ could never sympathize with a person like us. And, and we wonder this. How could someone who was sinless, who is sinless, understand temptation? How could he know the depths of temptation if he never gave in to temptation? How can Jesus know what it's like, what we said a moment ago? How can he know what it's like to have an anger problem? How could he possibly know what it's like that, for me to go through this addiction to pornography? Or how, how, what it's like that I always feel like I have to lie, I compulsively lie. I want us to listen to something that C.S. Lewis quotes uh, a quote by C.S. Lewis, something that he says in his book, Mere Christianity. And I, hope, I think it helps us think about this very idea. He says this, it's, it's up on the screen. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. You find out the strength of a wind, not by trying to walk against it, but by laying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of an evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Friends, the, the reason Jesus can be gentle towards the weak, towards the tempted, is that he knows what it's like to feel the full weight of temptation. You and I give in after five may minutes, maybe even less than that, but Jesus never did. Jesus never gave in, and that's the very reason why he knows in a profound way just the kind of help that we need. 
That's the very reason he knows the exact kind of thing you need in a profound way. He can give you what you need. But also notice this, the depth of his knowledge about temptation doesn't make him annoyed with you. It makes him gentle towards you. The text says that he sympathizes with you. I love the description of the ministry of Jesus in Isaiah 43. He says this, it says this, he will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick. What does that mean? It means that he comes to your broken reed and it, he comes to your broken and bruised faith and he holds it together just like it's a broken reed. Like it's this blade of grass that's been beat up and, and bent over and he comes to it and he holds it together so that it doesn't snap. Or he comes to you like you're a, an ember of fire that's getting ready to, to die out and he gives it attention. He breathes new life into it. Friends, that's how Jesus is gentle towards Christians who are weak and tempted, which leads us then to our next point. When we believe that he is gentle towards the weak, we'll go to him in prayer. We'll go to him in prayer. The next two fill in the blanks are the blood of Jesus gives us access to the throne of God and allows us to be bold in prayer. It gives us access to the throne of God and allows us to be bold in prayer. I said earlier that the, the trustworthiness of Christ is what gives weight to his promises. They would be empty, they would be hollow if he didn't have the authority to accomplish everything that he had promised. And it makes me think about some promises that have been made to me in my, in my lifetime, in the past. I'm not a very outdoorsy person. I've only been hunting uh, one time in my life. My brother told me that he would never take me out again because apparently I talk too much. Um, I think deer, apparently deer don't like it when you talk. Um, and I've only been fishing a couple of times, but two of those times are, are really memorable. They're pretty unforgettable. The first one was when I was a teenager. Some of my extended family said, we wanna take you out to catch flounder. And so they took me out at night to go flounder gigging. I don't know if any of you know what flounder gigging is, but it's when you take a, a torch or a flashlight in a spear and you go out into shallow water at night and you have this torch or flashlight and you gig the flounder, you spear the flounder. And we were gonna go catch a bunch of flounder. And, but the problem was this, that that night we went out and they started drinking a whole lot of alcohol and then they handed me the flashlight, okay? Which meant they had the spear. And I have this uh, strongly held belief that alcohol and sharp objects, they don't go together. And so that evening we caught zero flounders. We got no flounder that evening. But, but there's another time that it went a little bit better for me. Another fishing trip I went on, uh, it was, I went deep sea fishing not long ago. And when we were getting ready to go out deep sea fishing, the captain came to all of us and he said, look, I know exactly where we need to go. I know the right place. We've got a crew that's gonna get all the lines prepped. They're gonna get everything ready for you. And when we get out there, you're gonna catch a ton of red snapper. I know most of you are looking at me like, is this gonna fall through too? No, it didn't. We caught all of the red snapper that we could. All of us caught our limit. It was an amazing time out fishing. One of my only amazing times out fishing. 
Friends, if we know this, that if a promise is only as good as the person that makes it, then I want us to consider the amazing exhortation, the amazing promise that we have from God in verse 16. Go back to your Bible and just look at verse 16. God has made this promise to us that because of the blood of Jesus, we have access to the throne of God. We have access to the throne of God. I said last week that the job of the priest was to bring us to God. But there was, a, there was a malfunction keeping them from doing that effectively. And the reason that they needed a whole family of priests is that they kept dying. And the reason that they had to offer sacrifices every single day, every single year, is that all of those sacrifices, they could only pause the wrath of God. They could never pay for our sins. But Jesus is the answer to both of those problems. Jesus came and he offered his sinless life to pay for our sins. And in his resurrection, it means that he is continually, forever in the presence of God. And it means that he's effective as our high priest, completely effective as our high priest. It means that his ministry of being a high priest to us will forever be effective. He can always bring us into the presence of God which is the reason that the writer uses the word boldly to modify the exhortation. If you're the kind of person that underlines words in, in your Bible, you might wanna go in and underline that word boldly. It's one of the, the most important words in the New Testament that we get to see, that we should come to the Father boldly. Think about the kind of people who boldly walk into your home. What do they do? They immediately open up the fridge, right? <laughs> when they boldly walk into your house. What do they do? When you're watching house hunters and they turn on football, right? <laughs> you offer them chips and salsa and they say, you know what? Could I have French fries instead, right? What, what do you call people that act that way? You call them your children. <laughs> you call them your family. Some of you act that way all the time. So let me ask you this. Why would some of us act that way towards our family, but never, ever do that anywhere else? Because our relationship gives us access to the type of intruding, the type of bothering, the type of relentless fellowship that we need to do things like that. Friends, without Jesus... Without the blood of Jesus, none of the promises that we've been talking about, none of them belong to us. But because of the blood of Jesus, because of him, we don't slink cowardly into the presence of God. We come boldly into the presence of God. We get to come boldly into the presence of God, to the throne of grace. But finally, number three, I want us to see this. I want us to see what we receive when we come to the throne of grace. What we receive, and we're gonna see this, that Jesus can see and meet our needs. Jesus can see and meet our needs. You've probably heard this quote before by Ellie Weissel. He says this, that the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. Have you ever heard that? He says the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. I don't know if that's all the way true all the time, but it's a pretty dramatic way of saying this truth, that ignoring someone is one of the most unloving things that we could ever do. 
But it also means that when we feel seen, when we feel understood, it means that that's when we feel our most loved, right? This seems to be one of the implications of this verse, that you and I have a savior that sees us. We have a savior that sees us. How else would he have the ability to give such pointed, such targeted, such specific grace to us? Now think about it, what it says in verse 16. Go back there and look at it right now. It says this, that when we approach the throne of grace, we receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. In the moment that we need it the most, we have mercy and we have grace. There isn't one ounce of indifferent in Christ towards us. There isn't one ounce of indifferent in Christ towards you. Have you ever gotten a birthday present or a Christmas present from a person and when you open it, you realize they've been watching me? Like not like in a creepy way, they've been watching me. No. Like in a cool, like a sweet way. <laughs> they've been watching me. They know exactly what I need. They know exactly what would help me. They know exactly what would bring me some kind of joy. That's the picture I think that we should have in our mind when we think about this first. But instead of thinking about Christmas Day or your birthday, I want you to think about what it would have been like, what it's like to be seen on the most difficult day in your life. In the day where everything seems like it's just falling apart, Think about being completely overwhelmed with weakness, with temptation, with sorrow, with sadness, and then remembering Jesus sees me. Jesus understands everything I need right now. And he has access to the deepest places in my heart. That's what this verse says. He loves to deposit grace where there was despair. He loves to deposit hope where there was sorrow. And maybe you went to him in prayer and you're completely undone. And then while you're there with him in prayer, what does he do? He gives comfort. He gives clarity. He gave you hope. But also I want you to think about this. This verse tells us what we need most when God comes to us in those moments. In those moments that we go to him, what do we need most? Look at what it says. We need grace, right? The God who has access to everything, anything, when he comes to you, what he gives you is grace. That's what he knows that you need most. He knows that you need grace. I think some of us, though, would love for that verse to be rewritten, wouldn't we? Wouldn't some of us like for that verse to be written, rewritten and said, said something like this? Like instead of he helps us in our time of need, we would maybe like for it to say something like this. He takes away our time of need. <laughs> he takes away all of our needs. I don't want grace. I want you to take away my problem. I want you to take away the, the thing that's most difficult in my life. I don't want you just to give me grace to endure it. I want you to take it away completely. You know, if, if your child had some horrible sickness, some kind of horrible disease, and, then, and the doctors came up to you and they said, look, we have developed this pill 
And we've developed this pill that if you take it, you the parent, take this pill, that all of the disease of your child, all of the sickness of your child is gonna come on you. You're gonna take all of it and your child won't have any of it anymore. It's hard for me to imagine, hard for me to imagine that any of us would not do that for our kids. And now if you think of, if you imagine that that is the greatest display of love, then you might think, why would God not do that for me? Why would he not take away the thing that hurts me the most? Why would he not change my circumstances? You know, it's interesting that when Satan tempts Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, he's more or less saying the exact same thing to Jesus. Satan comes to him. He comes to Jesus and he says this, if you worship me, that I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the world. Meaning, press eject. Press eject on all of this, Jesus. If you press eject on, just press eject on living a sinless life, going to a cross, all of the sorrow, all of the difficulty, all of the pain that you're enduring. And if you do that, he says this to Jesus, if you do that, I'll give you all of the kingdoms of this world. You know, it would seem a little bit like a win-win for Jesus, right? Just do that. And what's he saying to Jesus at that moment? What he's saying is, you can have the accomplishment without the agony. You can have the crown without the cross. And friends, Jesus didn't give in, did he? He knew the only way to get the crown was to go through the cross. He knew that it was first suffering and then glory. And friends, God loves us too much to give us any other counterfeit path to glory. Think about what it says in, in Psalm 23. We all know, a lot of us know these verses. You probably say this in some moments of real difficulty. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what does it say? You're with me. You walk beside me. It doesn't say that I have no valley of the shadow of death. It says that while I'm walking through it, I get your presence. I get grace from you. You have given me targeted mercy for these moments. Friends, that's what's amazing about the promise that every Christian gets to hold on to. It's not he takes away all of my problems. It's this, that he helps me in my time of need. I can still remember the way that God gripped my heart when I was 18 years old. It was my own temptation to sin and my inability to stop sinning that God used to show me the depths of the, the wickedness, the darkness in my heart. And even though I didn't have the language for this at the time, the words to articulate it, what I see now is that this verse was describing everything that I, I wanted, but I didn't have. I didn't have a solid rock trust in my heart that I had a high priest who could help me in weakness and in temptation. I didn't have any grace to help me endure. I had no confidence that there was targeted mercy for the moments that I needed it most. But friends, my, my testimony, after walking with the Lord now for 24 years, is that I have a trustworthy Savior, that he's been so faithful to me. Every moment of need, there has been targeted mercy, targeted help. 
every moment of need. I, I, I would guess that if I grabbed one of these microphones back here and I, and I put it here and I asked all of us, all of us who are Christ followers, if you would maybe give a testimony for your own life, for the ways that you have seen God do that exact same thing, my guess is that we would be here just for hours. We'd be here for hours retelling all of the ways that you have seen in these moments Christ do the exact same thing. But it makes me wonder, I, I think about this as, as I think about my own life, 24 years of following Christ. I think about this, that you might be hearing this, you might be in this room right now, and you might know the weight of the temptation and weakness that I'm talking about. You might experience that all the time, but you do not know the kind of help that I'm talking about. You do not know the kind of help that all of us, a lot of us, would talk about if we could have a moment of testimony. And so I want to call you right now. I want to call you to turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Only Christ can take away your sin. Only Christ can be the Savior that intercedes and gives you help for every moment of your life like this. He promises to be a near, to be a present help for you for the rest of your life, forever, for always. You know, friends, I can think of a no better way uh, to lead into a time of taking the Lord's Supper than studying these words. And so I want to invite you, if you would, to grab this cup. But I also want to remind you that this is only an experience, a meal, a time for Christians. If you're not a Christian, like we said just a moment ago, Taking this would not be your confession. It would not be a true confession. This is only for Christians because that would not be a reflection of your heart. But Christian, I want to remind you that this, the blood of Jesus, it gives us access to the Father. The broken body of Jesus Christ means that we will forever have access to Jesus. So if you will, actually let's go ahead and stand up. Let's take these elements, and if you will, take that first tab off of here, that top tab, and, uh, and grab the bread. Now I'm going to read to us from Hebrews chapter 9. But now he has appeared one time. That's talking about Jesus. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Let's take the bread. Go ahead and take that second tab off. Let's listen to the word of God from Hebrews chapter seven, this text that I read to us last week. For this is the kind of high priest we need. And friends, praise God, it's the kind of high priest we have. This is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. Let's take the cup. 